You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have them, we'll have uh, most everything up on the screen. As Brent said, we are the second week in our study where we're looking at the Old Testament and we're looking at at types of Christ. Um, I'll explain a little bit more about what that means here in a moment. But to begin, um, do you remember when you were a kid? Do you remember having one of those uh, Viewmaster viewers? Uh, the, The little red binocular looking thing and you had the cylinder and the cylinder had seven tiny pictures in it. And so to the naked eye, you could say, okay, well, that might be a picture of a, of a boat or a spaceship or so, something like that. <clears throat> but it wasn't until you put it into the Viewmaster viewer and you looked through those binoculars were you able to see the picture. Did it, like, come alive for you, all right? Well, in some ways... That is the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament. Um, Those little tiny pictures are actually called stereographs. And to see a stereograph in its fullest color, you need a stereoscope, right? So that's what the Viewmaster Viewer was, a very cheap version of something that I'm sure when it was invented was extremely expensive, and you drop it in. Well, so the Old Testament has these stereographs all through it. I'd argue this morning on every page, but that's beyond the scope of my argument today. This morning what I want to do is I want to look at Adam, and I want to see Adam in his time and in his place, and hear the story of Adam through the ears of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness as Moses writes down this story. Because the events of what takes place with Adam has meaning for Adam. It has meaning, significant, real meaning for the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. And it also has a deeper and richer and fuller meaning now that we look back with the stereoscope and say, oh, man, God was... God was in this deal from the beginning. That's how we look at it. So we're going to be honest with the text um, in its time and in its place. And then we also want to see it through the lenses of what God has to say in the complete, the full revelation. Now that Jesus has come and and, uh, been crucified, laid dead in a grave, and has been resurrected. And so... uh, Romans uh, 5.14. So, by and large, I'm going to be in Genesis chapter 3. I've got a couple of references here in the beginning to Romans chapter 5, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and if we have time, I'll, I'll, I'll share with you something from Romans 16. Um, but, but here's what Romans 5.14 says, and this is where the whole language of, of typology comes from. So, Romans 5.14, Paul writes, he says, Yet death reigned... From Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. 
The, the word type in the Greek literally is tupos. One commentator translates it as pattern. Martin Luther talked about types as pictures of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, we find out that Paul says um, Adam was the first Adam and Jesus the last Adam. So we're going to look at Adam and we're going to consider the ways. Here's what I want to do. I want to consider the ways that Adam and Jesus are alike. I want to talk about how they are different. Then I want to walk through Adam's failure and then talk about Jesus' success. So that's the outline of this morning, how they're alike, how they're different, Adam's failure and Jesus' success. Well, here are the ways that Adam and Jesus are alike, and I take these directly from Scripture. So I'm not turning there. I'll tell you, I'll summarize it, but you can find this in Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15. How they are alike is they stand at the head, or they are representatives. They they stand for two different groups of people, two histories, two destinies, two eternities, and two ultimately glorious cities. Well, one glorious, one, one an abomination. That's the first way they are alike. They stand at the head of two peoples. The second way they are alike is they came into existence in extraordinary ways. Um, the story of Adam you can find in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 where God comes after he's created the heavens and the earth and scoops up a, a dirt clod and forms Adam out of a dirt clod. In fact, Adam's name means the dirt clod, essentially. It means earth, Adam. Jesus came into existence in an extraordinary way, too. Well, we got to qualify that statement, right? Because Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, always has been, always is, and always will be. But when we talk about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, the eternal Son of the eternal Father, he came into existence, into humanity through the birth of a teenage girl in a nowhere uh, hillside, you know, in, a, in essentially what was less than a homeless shelter. She was not married yet. She'd never known a man in the biblical way. And Jesus comes into existence, into our existence through the, through the womb of a, of a virgin. But both of the stories are extraordinary beginnings. Thirdly, this is the way that Jesus and Adam are alike. Both had an identity that was not a me, but an us. And what I mean by that is that when you walk through the days of creation, you find that at the Dear God creates Adam in Genesis chapter 2. He declares that, look, it's not good that man be alone. And so that is not to say that somehow God created something that was bad. What it is to say is that God creating Adam in his image, in the image of a triune God, in the image of not a me but an us, that Adam was created 
with the need not only for relationship with God, but to bear the image of God to be in relationship with others. He, Adam's not a me. Adam is not independent. His independence, his aloneness was not good. He was always meant to live as, as us. That's how he was always meant to be. Both Jesus and Adam have that in common. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Um, speaks of the, of the Father's love and the Father glorifying him. And Jesus says, I, I don't do things that glorify myself. If I'm going to be glorified, the Father's going to do that. And so we are meant as descendants of Adam, not to be me's, but to live as us. That is the ways they are alike. There are probably a few other ways. Um, we have time for those three. Now, let me talk about the ways that Jesus and Adam are different. This comes, that this is the direct language, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 15. 1 Romans 5. In Romans 5, we find they are different in this way. Sin came into the world through Adam. It was, um, you, you might say this way, it was Adam's gift to all that came after him. And the inheritance that he left, it, it was an inheritance of judgment and condemnation. All of us are guilty. All of us are subject to death. And so all of us die. You don't even have to send Adam a thank you note for that deal. You just get it. Jesus, however, in Romans 5, he offers a free gift of grace. And that gift comes with it, not death and condemnation and, and judgment. That gift brings justification and righteousness and life. And we find from Romans 5, Jesus' gift is the greater gift and Adam's gift is the lesser gift. Jesus' gift is available to all. Adam's gift is inherited by all. If you turned over to 1 Corinthians 15 and we were to look at that, in verses 21 and 22, we find a distinction between Adam and Jesus. It says, those that are in Adam die. And those who are in Jesus are made alive. Adam brought destruction of life, and Jesus offers resurrection of life. Vastly different. If you turn, if you were in 1 Corinthians 15 and you went down 20 verses to 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 47, you find Adam became a living being, means he was made. Jesus is a life giving spirit, which means he creates. Adam is from the earth, Jesus is from heaven. And from that, issues forth, Adam's children are from dust, Jesus's children, if we can say it that way, are from heaven. Adam's children bear his image of dust. Jesus's children bear his image of heaven. Adam's children will perish and cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus' children are secured with an imperishable future and are already heirs 
of the kingdom of God. That's the difference. When Paul talks about Jesus being a type of Christ, his primary view is that they stand at the heads of two groups of people. And most everything that comes after that could not be a greater contrast between the two. So, let's do this. Let's, let's take the stereograph and let's drop it in the stereoscope and let's go to Genesis chapter 3. And I want us to look at the failure of Adam. I'm going to read the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 3. I really wanted to preach half of Genesis 2, all of Genesis 3, and the beginning of Genesis 4. But you have children in children's ministry, and we have another service after this. And uh, so it's not going to work out, but we'll come back to it. So seven verses, Genesis 3, here we go. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. I'll come back to that in one second. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, here, here's what I want you to know. So, type of Adam, I read seven verses that seem to be about Eve. Here, here's what you need to know. Adam's there. When the serpent speaks to Eve, and he says, you, it's not you singular, it's you plural. Adam is standing right there. And she's the spokesman, spokeswoman. That's a whole sermon in and of itself, by the way, that I'm, I'm only going to scratch the surface of. So, like if in this tinge of a moment you, you felt like you were about to be convicted, good for you, go home and get convicted about that, all right? I, I'm going to move to a different point about it. What this is, is this is really the failure of Adam. That, that's how Paul talks about it. It's Adam's sin. It's Adam eating that brought death into the world. When we think about Adam, listen, it's important to know, Adam in this story is not the one that's deceived, at least not the way Eve was. Adam, he just conformed. He just went along with it. He was there, he was silent, the serpent addresses them both. Adam should have spoken up, he should have protected Eve, but he didn't. He, he provides no check, he's, maybe he's curious. At the very least, he's passive, and the temptation of being like God 
that was in his own heart was rising to the level of his will. Either way, as I said, Romans 5 is clear. Humanity's fall, humanity's sin, humanity's death that we all inherited comes from Adam. Now, I want to look at three things here. One, I I want you to see that the failure in Genesis chapter 3 is that they did not believe God. They sought for more than what God had given them. Notice how this happens. It's instructive for us. In the first place, the serpent, who is Satan, it's it's okay to say it's Satan. We find out later in Genesis chapter 12 that's exactly who it is. That Satan, the serpent, is skillful. He's wise. He's crafty. It's a neutral term that is determined by the context, and in this context, it has a negative connotation, but nonetheless, he is wise. He is smart. He is ingenious. And in verse 1, the last half of verse 1, his strategy comes through in a question that's designed to mock God. He doesn't aim straight at an act of sin. He aims at their attitude about God. Did, did, God, did, God, did God really say that? He would say that. You know, I mean... That's just like him to say that. It's not a denial. It's a mockery. You see that? He shows up and he begins not to deny the authority of God, but to mock the authority of God. Well, the story should have gone a whole different way, and then the Bible would be like six chapters and Uh, you'd have all got to check off your list. I read the whole Bible, right? It's not how it goes. Adam should have said, whoa, wait a minute. I don't know who you are, but I named all the animals. I didn't see you. Don't talk about God that way. That's not what he said. It's the poison of manipulation. He's not challenging God's authority. He's undermining it. He's inviting them to pass judgment on God. Well, secondly, in verses 2 and 3, her answer is subtly destructive. Here's what she does. Let me tell you what she does. She's going to minimize the grace of God. She's going to maximize the burden. And she's going to diminish the consequence. Look at what she does. In in verse 2, she minimizes the grace of God. God had said in Genesis 2.16, they could freely eat, which means God had said, eat until your heart is content. There's There's no end of the line. I mean, it's like ponchos. You just keep raising the flag, man. It's all yours. There is no restriction It is full of grace. And she minimizes the grace. She leaves that part out. Secondly, 
She added to the command, neither shall you touch it. So, no, he said, don't eat of the tree. And, and <laughs> we're not even supposed to touch it. I'm a good Sunday school girl. Never do anything that's wrong. Where God forgot to make up rules, I'm happy to make them up. She, this is legalism. We're seeing the first echoes of legalism. When you minimize grace, this is what you end up doing. You maximize the burden. That wasn't a burden that God had put on them. Her own sanction becomes the basis for obedience to God. Not, not grace, her own sanction. They were not going to, he said, don't eat of it. <laughs> I'm not even going to touch it. That's what I'm not going to do. Legalism is her defense there. Then in the third thing she does is she weakens the consequence. God had said, you'll surely die, and she, she uses the word lest, um, lest you die. And it's a word that expresses caution, not a command. In other words, she turned a stop sign into a yield sign. That's what she does when she changes the language. In, in four and five, I want you to see this. When you minimize grace and you maximize burden and you weaken the consequence, you diminish the consequence, then you are poised to believe that God is not good and that he's holding something back on you. That's the position that you're in. That is the serpent's accusation against God. To listen. <laughs> you're not going to die. He's just saying that. I've, not, I've been around. I know him. He, he comes off strong. He's not really that strong. You're not really going to die. The real reason, he's holding out on you. I mean, listen, when you minimize the grace of God, you'll deny the goodness of God. Do you know that? Here's what he's saying. God, if you obey him, if you obey God, um, he's going to keep you down. I mean, look, God knows. Look, he, 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 he found out the secret. He knows that if you do this, then you'll broaden your horizons, and he doesn't want you to. He's trying to keep you in a little box here. Satan is trying to get to the heart of this human race right at the beginning. If you obey God, you're going to miss out. If you obey God, you're not going to be happy. If you obey the will of God, you'll, you're going to get there's a whole bunch of options that aren't open to you now. It'll keep you from being all that you want to be. You, you, you're not going to thrive. You're not going to flourish. That's his statement here. In other words, if you obey God, you can't trust um, his goodwill. He, you, you can't trust him. You, you're going to have to take your life into your own hands. You, you know why you're tempted There'd be no temptation, I don't think, unless underneath this, you believed that you really could trust God. If you believed that you really could trust God, and you really believed that he was good, it, it undermines temptation when it comes. 
There's a, uh, a uh, neuroscientist uh, that worked for Harvard. Her name was Jill Bolt Taylor. Maybe you saw her on a TED Talk. It, w- it went viral not too long ago. And she's a neuroscientist, and she talks about um, the, the day she experienced nirvana. So she's a neuroscientist who had made all of her study, all of her life's work in the area of the brain and what happens to the brain and how the brain works and what it does and what it doesn't do and the things that affect the brain. But she came to a place of nirvana. She says she came to a place of understanding the brain in a different way the morning she woke up and had a stroke. She said she was in her apartment with a piercing pain behind her eye, a blood vessel in her brain popped, and within minutes, her left lobe, the source of her ego, analysis, judgment, context, began to fail her, and oddly, she said it felt great. It's like this. An oncologist knows about cancer from the outside looking in. The cancer patient knows about cancer from the inside looking out. This is, this is what happens. They move from being oncologists to patients about sin. And the truth is, um, there's no going back. Well, God doesn't explain the details of the tree. I mean, if you eat, you'll die. That's it. What's so bad about the tree? It's not murder, stealing, adultery. I mean, it's just a tree. In fact, it's a good tree because you created it, God. What's the deal? Well, God doesn't tell them, or we don't have any record of him telling them. It's not as though God comes and says, look, I should have told you more so that you could make the decision for your own. You're right, I'm sorry I built this faith and trust into my goodness into the deal. Let me give you all the facts, and then you decide. You become your own God in the situation. It's not what God does. And say, so, look, when you eat that tree, you aren't going to believe. First of all, you're going to realize you're naked. I don't know, you, you don't know what naked is yet, but you're going to eat it and you're going to know it because you're going to know shame and you're going to know guilt. And not only you, but your children are going to know it. And from this one act will come heinous acts that stretch out through the history of this planet. And you'll watch one son kill another. See, they would have said, you know, you're right, we really don't want the tree. But that not, would not have been faith in the goodness of God. It would have been the power of their own reasoning. I'm going to come back to this because this, this is the challenge for us who are, you know, like really smart in the 21st century. We don't really want faith. We want all the facts and to be able to make our own decision about it and then whatever version of that, then call that faith. I'm I'm going to talk about that. But, But let me show you this first. 
They tried to go back to innocence. Did you notice that in verse 7? They tried to cover their sins. They tried to do it themselves. It's like, whoa, uh-oh. Uh, this is different. We're naked, and not only are we naked, we didn't even know that was a thing, and now we're, now we're ashamed. So they gather up some fig leaves, and they try to cover themselves. See, see, what happened is, is Eve, and with Adam with her, looked at the tree, and they made their own judgment about it. See, God had pronounced what was good. God had stated what was good. He'd also set the boundaries, and he'd made the space for their faith, the space to trust in his goodness and in his love and in his grace. And here Eve and Adam with her, they make their own pronouncement. They decide what's good. She's making her own judgment. He is making his own judgment. He is taking his finite knowledge and bringing it to bear on what is infinite and eternal. And so with limited understanding in this moment, claiming to have ultimate knowledge. And so they turn from faith to God to faith in themselves. What do you believe? They had faith in their eyes. They had faith in their desires. They had faith in their limited understanding. That's all they needed to conclude, that God is not good. He's not holy. And so they set out, Adam and Eve, Eve and Adam with her, to be their own God. And now they're naked and they're ashamed and they try to cover themselves. They try to relieve the shame, undo what's been done. But listen, once we know evil, we can't unknow evil. There's no way back to innocence. As I got a fortune cookie last night, we got some Chinese takeout and um, gone to the place. I got the stuff, and they, they, it's a great place, but they staple up the sack. I mean, they don't want you to like open it up and look it in there. So I'm like, okay, I trust you. Take the sack home, get home and realize I didn't have something. Well, I don't live very far away from it, so I go back. So apologetic, although... I was a little out of fellowship, probably driving back over there. I mean, just between you and me. But I, I got the rice I didn't have, and she also gave me two free spring rolls, you know, to kind of cover over the deal. So I get back, open up the fortune cookie, and what's funny is the fortune cookie says, time heals all wounds, keep your chin up. And I thought, no. The two spring rolls healed that wound. Because <laughs> here's the deal. Sometimes we don't, have, we don't have the time for the wounds to heal, do we? I mean, we'll run out of time. If time is what you're counting on, you don't have enough of it. Adam lived 900 years. That wasn't enough time to undo it. Once we know evil, we can't ever unknow it. There's no way back to innocence. The only way is forward to the cross. What happens a little bit later is that Adam, instead of being the advocate for Eve that he should have been, the protector for Eve that he should have been, you know what he, you know what he did? He became her accuser. 
And it's the first evidence that he was following the accuser. You know, that's what Satan is in God's Word. He's an accuser. That finger that's pointed at you says, you know. You, you know all about you. It's the accuser. Eve minimizes grace. She maximizes burden. She diminished the consequences. And when you minimize grace and you maximize burden, you're poised to believe God isn't good. And when you diminish consequences, you're poised to believe God's not holy. But he's both. And Adam had the chance to defend grace. He had the chance to hush legalism. He had the chance to defend holiness. And he didn't. What we're about to see here in the next 10 minutes is that Jesus maximizes grace. Jesus minimizes burden. If you want to know something, Jesus, you, you know, it seemed to bend him out of shape in the holy and divine way more than anything. It wasn't the prostitutes he encountered. It was the legalists. He maximizes grace, he minimizes burden, and he takes upon himself all the consequences. Adam failed. Adam was silent. Jesus succeeds. And he brings satisfaction for judgment, and he silences the accuser. And so how does he do it? Well, God never starts a journey without knowing exactly where he's going. That's our contention about God's Word. That from the beginning, he knows where this is going. And the first step here shows that before it ever began, he's committed to the whole thing. He, he, he knows what it's going to cost. He knows that it, he knows the, the cost of, of taking that step into the garden, of knowing what has just happened and stepping into the garden. He didn't have to. Could have just left it, pushed earth way out to the edge of the Milky Way, let no sun and too much gravity and not enough light take care of everything. But he doesn't. He steps right back into the middle of it, knowing exactly what it's going to cost him. Because from the very beginning, we see God's determination to save us, to find us, even in light of the cost. So what is it going to cost him? Well, I'll tell you, it's going to cost him his son, Jesus, his son voluntarily coming and dying on a cross. The, the father will voluntarily set his son on a cross. That's what it costs him. On the night before the crucifixion, Jesus meets with the father in the garden. I, I've stood there, Garden of Gethsemane. Well, uh, uh, I hope I never get over it. And the conversation's about a tree. This time it's the cross. And the first conversation, don't eat from the tree and you'll live. This, you know, Adam and Eve, they, they didn't believe God about that. The second conversation, go to the tree, climb the tree, be crucified by the tree. Drink the drags of the cup of wrath. And you will be destroyed. You see the contrast? Don't eat from the tree, live. 
The offer for Jesus embraced the cross, the shame, humiliation, death, destruction, wrath. And because the first Adam failed, it was the only way we could be saved. He took the punishment for our sin. The cross became a tree of life for us because it was a tree of death for him. Now, let me make this practical for one second, and then we're going to get out of here. But there's a lot of people who find the crucifixion distasteful and repulsive. They, they, they mock it. They, they seek to undermine it. They, they, they call the whole thing into question. And they may say something like this, look, look, that's, that's fine, but that's extreme. I mean, I like the idea of grace. I mean, but, but the cost here, I mean, that's too... Shocking. It's too repulsive. That, that's not my God. I mean, I think God's gracious and all, and, and his grace is available to all those that are good. I mean, I'll do my part, and then I trust that God's going to be fair to accept that. That, I'm afraid, is the operating understanding of grace in our culture. And it, I think it's the operating understanding of grace in our churches. That may be your view. I mean, if it is, what I'm hoping is that I'm going to uncover this, that I'm hoping to unravel you this morning. Here's, here's what I'd say to you. If, if, you're, if your view is like that, look, that, that is so extreme. I, I, that, that's, that's more, that's more uh, I'm not willing to go there. I'd say to you, you, look, you don't believe that God's gracious. In fact, at the heart of it, you, you don't believe that God loves you and that God delights in you. If you did, listen, criticism wouldn't absolutely destroy you. Your sensitivity to being offended by others wouldn't be turned up to the maximum volume. You, you wouldn't live disappointed with every single person in your life and the, the, the nurturing of the bitterness of every unmet expectation. If you believed God loved you, if you believed he loved you and was delighted in you. So you don't believe that God's truly gracious and truly loving is crazy about you. It's because you're operating with an understanding of grace that's replaced the God of the Bible with the God of your own making. So, so to look at God and to minimize the grace of the sacrifice of his son and to maximize the burden of your own good life, you've taken away the gospel. It's not the gospel anymore. What you think may be more loving and more fair is actually hope in another God. You have a God who basically pays nothing, makes no sacrifice, has nothing to offer you but fairness. The God who comes to you hiding in the garden, asking, where are you? He has nothing to offer you. That God has nothing to offer you. He can't cover your shame. He can't relieve your guilt. He can't forgive your sin. He can't heal you and make you whole. He's not a God that can change your life. He's, not a, he's a God that requires you to change your own life. If your hope and your pride this morning is in your ability to keep the rules, you've diminished grace and maximized burden. 
And you're taking what may be even good things and you're taking them to yourself and using them in a way to be your own Lord and Savior. And when you do this, you're left with no other choice than to diminish the holiness of God. In fact, Jesus tells a parable about this. Luke 15, you're the, you're the older brother. You're standing outside the party bitter because God's not fair. You're not getting the props you deserve. And the invitation for you this morning, let me say this, come, come. Lay aside the burden of your performance and proving yourself and the pride of your self-righteousness. Step into the grace and the love of God. The invitation is to believe that God loves you and that he sent his son to die for you, not because you deserve it or could ever earn it, but because he's good and gracious and loving and holy. Come and eat freely. Come. For those of you that have just abandoned the idea of God, you're, you're going your own way, you're, you're eating from all the trees, you, you want freedom, not rules, you want to live your life, and nobody tell you what to do or when to do it or how to do it, you're your own person, you're the captain of your own ship. Man, congratulations. That's awesome. But here's the deal. You're in the same boat. You don't believe that God's truly loving and gracious and delights in you. The invitation's the same for you. Trust in the grace of God. See, you're convinced that God's out to get you. He's going to squash you, keep you down. That he's the man. And you think of a relationship with God moving you in the opposite direction of what you think will make you happy and what you believe is good because you're more capable of judging what's good on your own. See, the younger brother in Luke 15, he believed the same thing about his father. In fact, he declared his father dead and then went on his own way. And listen, I don't know where you are on that journey this morning. The younger brother in Luke 15, I mean, he lived it up, but it did not lead to the place where he thought. It actually led him to the lowest possible place on the earth to the degree that he shakes himself off and says, I don't, I'll go back as a slave. I got the whole thing rehearsed. I know I never could go back as a son, ever. So I'll go back as a slave. Because at least I'd be able to eat. Having abandoned the hope of ever being loved by the Father, he decides to go back as a slave, and what happens is he's received as a son. Celebration is thrown, a fatted calf is killed, and the party of all parties happens. Everything he went looking for on his own was there for him in the goodness and grace and love of the Father. And you know, the story is not actually about the younger son or the older son, it's about the Father. He's not impressed with the pride of the older brother. He's not repulsed by the shame of the younger brother. He loves them both, delights in them both. He's given everything he has for them so that they'd know his love. That's the requirement. Come and eat. 
What we find this morning is that Adam's like us. We're actually the picture of Adam. We drop the stereograph into the stereoscope, and what we see is us. Adam's the type that represents all of us. Jesus is the better Adam. He's what we're always meant to be. The love of Jesus, the love that Jesus knew from the Father, the delight, the fellowship, the blessings, the goodness, that's who we're supposed to be. Adam failed, but Jesus passed. Adam failed in the garden. Jesus passed the test in the wilderness. Adam was tested by Satan and fell, and Jesus was tested by Satan and triumphed. And on and on and on and on. And so, the Son of God became man. He came to take the place of the first Adam. He came to take our place so that we, by faith in the grace of God in His Son, Jesus, could take his place so that we could be restored, so that we could be covered, so that we'd know the goodness and the grace of God and walk in his holiness right alongside him. It's the offer this morning. Please don't leave here without at least considering it. I'd ask you as your pastor, if you'd let me be your pastor today, come and eat. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word, the brilliance with which you inspired the authors. Father, the fact that you knew everything it would cost you to declare the very first words, let there be light. And so, Father, you, uh, you're after us because you love us, and you delight in us. And for everybody here this morning that's bought the lie, that's, that's mocked you in some way, that has thought, you know what, you're, you're, you're not out for my good. Or I know. I'll, I'll, I'll appease you with all of my works. Father, unravel that in us today and help us to see more clearly the gospel of grace. That's what we need in Jesus' name. The only name we can pray and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.